were in Atra in 2000. We were in Duhok, stayed in a hotel. There was a door between our rooms. We each had our own room. But every morning he'd wake me up. He'd call my room and I'd pick it up and he'd be sing- he would be singing Rujjwanka. I've often asked my guests who their role models are. Almost always they seem to mention their parents and it makes sense. Their parents have been through thick and thin. They've made dire sacrifices. And once we've made it to adulthood, we look back and are amazed at how they held their composure as parents. The term role model was coined by Robert K. Merton, who was an American sociologist spending most of his career teaching at Columbia University. He is considered a founding father of modern sociology, referencing individuals who compare themselves with those who occupy a social role they aspire to. The term role model grew from his theory of the reference group, the group to which individuals compare themselves but to which they do not necessarily belong to. By the mid-1990s, the term entered our lexicon. Aside from my parents being my role models, Osher has been a role model of mine since my teenage years. His professionalism and love for his nation is something that I always aspire for. Osher Yosef joined the Assyrian Aid Society of America in 1993 as the project manager for the Lifeline Pledge program, which continues to this day, having raised over $2 million. He became the second vice president of the Assyrian Aid Society of America, succeeding founder Dr. Lincoln Malik, and teaming with newly installed president Nersey David. In 2011, with the retirement of Nersey David, Osher was elected as the Assyrian Aid Society of America president. During his tenure, the Assyrian Aid Society of America has weathered some of its most demanding challenges, such as the rise of ISIS and the fall of Mosul but has also seen its most successful fundraising years. Administratively, Osher has given special focus on bringing younger professionals into leadership positions and mentoring them closely over the years to build a strong foundation for the next generation of leaders of the Assyrian Aid Society of America. Osher currently serves as a Senior Vice President for Infrastructure and Business Development with WSP USA, In 2000, Osher was appointed by then-San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown as the lead infrastructure project manager for the multi-billion dollar Mission Bay development. In 2004, he was appointed by then-San Francisco Mayor and current California Governor Gavin Newsom as the lead infrastructure project manager for the multi-billion dollar development of the Hunters Point Shipyard Phase 1. And in 2006, Osher was appointed by the late San Francisco Mayor Edwin Lee as the Infrastructure Development Program Manager for all the major developments in San Francisco. Osher is married to his college sweetheart and resides in Concord, California. They have two adult children, George and Christina. I want to remind you to make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review us wherever you listen to the podcasts. Also, if you know someone who should be on the podcast, please reach out to us. You can find more information about nominating future guests on our website. For our listeners from the United States, here's a quick word about the 2020 census. Every 10 years, the United States completes a census nationwide to essentially get a count of everyone who lives in the country. These counts are important because they give the government a sense of the demographic makeup of the nation. Various organizations have unified in an effort to ensure that every Assyrian in the United States is counted in the 2020 census. 
Here is how you can make sure you are counted as an Assyrian. Under the race section, check other and write out Assyrian in the space provided. For more information regarding the 2020 census, please go to www.2020census.gov. Lastly, the Assyrian podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligarakis and the injury lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or 847-982-9516. And now let's hear more about Ashur Yosef. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Assyrian Podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you. Good afternoon, Peter. I'm glad that you're hosting me and having me here. It's a pleasure. Yeah, I know we've been trying to schedule this for quite some time, but we finally made some time. So tell us in one sentence, give me who is Asher Yosef? <laughs> Trick question. <laughs> uh, um, let's see. Well, who is Asher Yosef? Asher Yosef is, a, is an Assyrian, a father, a husband, a son. That's who Asher is. Yeah. Asher, where were you born and raised? I was born in Kirkuk in uh, Iraq, 1957. Uh, we moved to Baghdad in, I believe it was 1961, and lived there until we decided to leave Iraq. Um, we left Iraq in 1974 to Beirut, Lebanon. We lived in Beirut for a little over a year and then in 1975, we uh, came to the United States uh, to San Francisco, where I had two uncles that were here. Yeah. To Khal- So uh, we came to San Francisco in 1975. Hmm. Been in the Bay Area ever since. So for those listeners who are outside of the United States, the Bay Area is what we refer to as the San Francisco Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, the San Francisco uh, area and surrounding areas. So take us back to Kirkuk, take us back to Baghdad. How was it? How was life like growing up uh, in the 60s in Iraq? Well, you know, um, I was obviously young. I was born in 57. So we, when we moved to Baghdad, actually, I was, uh, <clears throat> I was obviously very young. And we moved to, uh, from, uh, to a city. Our first house was in... Uh, Al-Batawin district of Baghdad. Our neighbors across the street, oddly enough, were the Shabbos family. Mm. Sargon Shabbos, who, (laughs) oddly enough, he and I worked together for the Assyrian aid. So they were our uh, neighbors and uh, uh, the family of Asher Sergis were neighbors as well. Wow. Yes, yes. Um, So uh, we moved there, but I did spend every, pretty much every summer with my grandparents in Kirkuk. They lived in uh, Arafah. So we would go, my sister and I, for the summer, and I had some great memories of uh, um, spending my summers in Kirkuk. And um, had a happy childhood. It was until uh, my father was arrested and uh, thrown in jail, and um, like many thousands upon thousands of people, accused of you know, misdeeds that really were not, you know, political. What year did he get arrested? Um, this was, I want to say, um, it was 74 before we left. After he was tortured, thrown in jail, we came home one day. Oh, and 
doorbell rang, opened the door, and there was my father standing there, beard and, and uh, you know, long beard and bloody shirt and uh, from being tortured. After that, once he got a little bit better, then it was time for us to leave, and, um, and we went to Lebanon, Beirut, and then, like I said, in 75, we made our way here. What was the reasoning behind his arrest and his torture? His part of his job, my father worked for a company, a consulting company, uh, Iraqi consulting company that was working with a West German company, an Italian company building a uh, paper uh, production factory just north of Basra, Mamal al-Wara. And part of his job was uh, to deal with these foreign companies and every so often travel to Europe, part of his business. And he was accused of spying and things of that sort that really had nothing yeah. uh, to do with what he was doing. Okay. And they apparently let him go, said uh, somebody uh, misinformed us on you and gave us the wrong information. And sorry, you're free, go. Do you think he was also high profile perhaps because he was an Assyrian? I, you know what, I don't know that, yeah. uh, perhaps. After that, it was, like I said, it was uh, time for us to leave and, and we left like many Assyrian families. Mm -hmm. What were some of your favorite memories, you know, growing up in Iraq? Well, again, I, I really, some of my fondest memories were uh, when I was uh, young, going to spend summers in Kirkuk at my grandparents. Growing up in Baghdad, I mean, we went to schools. We went to one school that where my sister and I were the only Christian Assyrian students in the whole school. We really never felt that we were out of place. We're just like all the other kids. So there wasn't, I mean, what you see these days happen in Iraq. We, we didn't personally, yeah. as a child, I, I didn't, exp I mean, I played soccer and we lived in the Sadun district, played soccer with my buddies. I mean, we were we had Armenian, Assyrian, uh, we had uh, Sunni, Shia. We didn't ask that. We, we were just kids playing together. Yeah. So, so it wasn't as sectarian as it is now? Not at all. I mean, my parents, we had uh, one in, in our neighborhood. We had a family, a very rich family, a uh, contractor, the, the father, the patriarch of the family. They were Shia. My parents would sit with the family and have dinner. The man had four wives and half the kids in the neighborhood were his. Yeah. And, but my parents would, would sit with the whole family, you know, um, for dinner with them like they were part of their family. Mm -hmm. No, there wasn't any of what you see now. Yeah. Now, you know, it's unfortunate what's going on. What is, what is life like for you and the family in Lebanon on, on route to the United States? Uh, we lived in Sad uh, al-Boshari, high Assyrian, in the, in the Assyrian uh, sector. District, yeah. Got to know a lot of people. Some of them are here, you know, from Lebanon that are yeah. here in Turak, Modesto area. We've remained friends. We were one of the earliest families that came there. And after that, there was an influx of Assyrian families that left Iraq and came into Beirut. But we were one of the earliest family there. But we, we, we really, it was, a, I was young, so I didn't have the responsibility that my parents yeah. had. So I had a good time. I enjoyed, I enjoyed my time in Beirut. I, I, I love the neighborhood. I love the people that I got to know. 
How many years did you spend there? Uh, just over a year. And then so you come to San Francisco. We come to San Francisco. I uh, barely speak any English. Um, 1975, thrown in high school. In San Francisco. Uh, in San Francisco City. at Lincoln, Lincoln High School in San Francisco. My, uh, one of my early experiences, we had PE, you know, a physical education class. And I understood that uh, we were going to play football that day. And so I was all excited, football, you know, yeah. we're play soccer. So I walk out on the field and uh, I see these uh, really strange looking oblong shaped things flying around, you know, guys throwing them to each other and catching them. And I realized that that was football, but it's not the football I know. American football. So they, yeah, so I have no idea what American football is. So they say, okay, they split up teams. And this is touch football. I don't know what that is. Split up teams. I'm, I'm small. I'm, I'm fast. The quarterback, I understood. He said, run seven, eight yards, ten yards. Turn around, I'll throw you the ball. I understood that much. <laughs> so it was hot, hot. And I take off running and turn around. The guy throws me the ball. I caught the ball. He didn't tell me what to do with the ball once I caught it. I had no idea what to do with the ball. <laughs> I see these guys coming at me, running at me. So I pick up the ball and throw it back to the quarterback. <laughs> Suffice it to say, I learned, uh, I learned a few swear words that day. Yeah. You know, that was really the day I came back home and I thought, okay, I got to learn this game. And I fell in love with American football. And as you can see with my yeah. hat, I'm a, I'm a diehard for 49ers fan. So, Living in San Francisco at the time, I believe at that time there was a, maybe a small community, a Syrian community here. There was also a modern United States church. So how was it like growing up as an Assyrian in San Francisco during that time? We lived in the Sunset District, and that's where Omrit uh, Marinarse uh, is. Pretty much the Assyrian community, as small as it, it is and it was, uh, lived in that neighborhood. You know, Assyrians, we congregate in the same yeah. place. And uh, yeah, the church was within walking distance from our house and got to know some Assyrians. And I actually, when I was in high school, I worked in a gas station in those days. Um, you know, we pumped gas, we washed windows, and yeah. gave you free maps and things of that sort. And I worked for uh, Nona, since he's passed away, Nona Nona. Uh, known as uh, Texaco. And that was a place, actually, a gathering place for Assyrians would come and just shoot the yeah, breeze. Like basically, it, it yeah. was. They would bring their cars for service, but it was a place where everybody kind of met. So wow. I got to meet a lot of Assyrians. And uh, like I said, Nona moved to uh, Turlock after that. And um, right now, I think it, he's, he's since passed on a few years ago, and his brother, Sargon Nona has a shop in Turlock. Wow. It was interesting. We had a small community, but I, I think mm -hmm. that time we were pretty pretty yeah. close-knit community. So the gas station and church served as the, the social... Pretty much so, yes. Yeah. Yes, okay. they were. They were. And um, went to school. In high school, we had a few Assyrian students. Again, because we all lived in the same neighborhood, we went to the neighborhood high school. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we went to school together. It was fun. The first years of my life in, in the United States in San Francisco, you know, they were just um, learning so much. They were exciting because it was a new culture for yeah. me. And I really wanted to embrace the culture mm -hmm. and learn. Things were coming at me from all different angles. And I just, and I just enjoyed it. And yeah. it was very enjoyable. 
life takes you to from your biography life takes you to sacramento to study engineering yeah so um i applied to a bunch of schools and um and i got accepted i did not want to go away far away from home yeah for me i I went on interviews with different schools and Sacramento State seemed to be the best fit for me at that time. And, uh, and I went uh, there, I was studying mechanical engineering. Actually, um, my uh, last year, I met this co-ed. That was what, 38 years ago and we're still together. Yeah. So uh, Stephanie and I will be celebrating our 35th wedding anniversary actually coming up in, in June. Not only did I get a degree, but I met my uh, my life partner. Wow. Yeah. What made you get into mechanical engineering? You know, I took an exam, one of these exams they give in college. I really wanted to study like political science, uh, you know, coming from the Middle East. And and um, I thought that was the one thing I wanted to study. And then I took one of these high school exams and uh, I scored high in math and, you know, science. And I was told that I should think about studying study engineering. And mm -hmm. uh, I picked mechanical engineering. <laughs> as silly as it might sound, I really, once I got into it, I wanted to graduate and uh, design toys. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to design toys. Thank God I didn't do that because with all the electronics, I would yeah. be probably broke and <laughs> starving right now. But that's what I got into it. And, you know, life mm -hmm. takes you in directions that you don't really realize during attending Sacramento State graduating are you involved in any, any sort of civic Assyrian organizations or clubs no I was not let me tell you when I became active in Assyrian causes it was well after I got married and then um, after the first Gulf War in 1991 when we all saw on television these when Saddam's troops invaded the north and pushed all the, the population, which was including Assyrian communities, villages, pushed them out into southern Turkey. And we were watching people in the snowy mountains covering themselves with cardboard boxes. And if you were lucky, you had a tarp over your head. Yeah. Helicopters pushing food out of the door and, and people fighting for food on the ground. As they're dropping it, those were heart-wrenching. And I realized not only this is terrible to, for humanity in general, but there are Assyrians in there too. So I really started exploring. I tried to reach out to multiple Assyrian organizations saying, hey, I want to help. What are we doing for our people in Gerbia? And I was astounded at, at what I heard. There were so many excuses that were made why we haven't been able as an organization, if I was talking to an organization, why they were not able to help uh, financially because of all these other restraints. And I was totally disappointed, heartbroken. And then my father told me, he said, hey, there's this new group called Assyrian Aid, Sitot Odrana. It was just established if you want to talk to them. And I said, well, who do I talk to? He said, talk to Rabbi Yuul Baba. I contacted Rabbi Yuul Baba. We talked a little bit. Rabbi Yuul Baba had just stepped aside from the organization. Narsi David had taken over for him. So Rabbi Yuul gave me the phone number to Dr. Lincoln Malik. 
And I called Dr. Lincoln Malik and he and I met and uh, he brought me on board. It was Dr. Malik that brought me on board. My first project was I was brought on board as special projects coordinator. And uh, my first project was, and that was with the help of Dr. Lincoln Malik. It was his idea, actually. Sargina Tamimi and I worked on it to implement it. And it was the Lifeline Pledge. Yeah. And which is the monthly credit card uh, donations, monthly donations. And uh, that program has raised over $2 million over its life. Now, that might not sound like a lot of money, but when there was a need and that money, when it's needed, it's very important, yeah. even as small as it is. Uh, that's how my, my really first exposure to work in on Assyrian yeah. causes yeah. was with the Assyrian aid. I joined in, actually next month, it'll be 27 years. So 27 years ago, it's been, it's been a wonderful experience. To tell you the truth, I didn't think that I'd be with the Assyrian aid for so long because we thought things would get better five, six years. Yeah. And then we would look back at the Assyrian aid and say, okay, do we still need the Assyrian aid Maybe we fulfilled our mission and our people are settled now and everything is okay. Either tweak our mission or maybe just disband the organization since we don't need it anymore. And again, for me, 20, unfortunately, 26 years later, we're still here and the need is great. And it's just, it's a sad statement about what's happening to our people in, the, in, in Atra. You mentioned mission. What is the mission of the Assyrian Aid Society? It's, it's very simple. It's to help our people in the, in the homeland and in the Middle East. It's, it's as simple as that. We, unlike other organizations, or you know, we don't look at you. Our mission is to help you as an Assyrian. We don't ask what church you belong to, what shota tribe you belong to. We don't ask if you're religious background. That, that's not an issue for us. Our main focus is to help Assyrians in need. It's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. Yes. What was it that drew you? Was it the cause? Was it the individuals that were involved in the cause? Was it so, family who, who? More, you know, the, the, you mentioned some of them, actually. Um, one of the things when I met with Dr. Lincoln Malik, I was struck by his passion. I mean, he was absolutely passionate about yeah. this. Cause. And Lincoln, Lincoln was a guest of the Syrian podcast. I, a, I listened a few to that. Ago. I listened to that podcast. One of my favorite, actually. Yes, and Lincoln is a brilliant human me being. Um, I have the utmost respect for him. But when I saw that passion that he had, and then the passion of the other people that he introduced me to, and these were people that were all volunteers. Not one of them was getting paid. And uh, they were serving a cause that nobody else was taking on. Another thing that was kind of unique, um, not to be condescending or anything, but there was this drive to attract Assyrian intelligentsia. Let's bring these people that are on the outside, on the outskirts, that don't want to have anything to do with today's organizations because they're tired of hearing the same thing. And let's bring him. Let's, let's try to reach out. And, and that's his vision of that was one of the things that really attracted mm -hmm. me as well. Aside from 
from the core value of what the organization is trying to do. This totally humanitarian mission. Yeah. In June of 2019, you announced that you were stepping down from your role as president of the Assyrian Aid Society of America. Yeah. Why the decision now? I think one of the things that when Narsi stepped aside and I took over. Narsi David? Narsi David, I'm sorry. When he took over, I took over from Narsi David. Now, off the topic, taken over from a legend, it's not an easy thing. I mean, I thought about it long and hard. I was like, okay, so this is Narsi David. And for me to be able to fill his shoes, that was a task I wasn't going to be able to do. I mean, yeah. The man is larger than life. So at that time, I stepped back and decided, what do I want to do in my time while I'm there at the helm? And the focus, one of my focus, I focused on bringing youth into the organization. But that was one of the things that I really wanted to do. And I believe right now we have a, um, a solid core of young professionals, not as many as I'd like to have on, on board, but definitely a good core. So I looked around and I saw that uh, the organization, when you get into a place, the organization needs an injection of energy, new energy, new blood. And I thought that's a good time for me to step aside and bring in the youth, mm. the young people. And, and we have Antoine Varani, Dr. Varani, uh, who has graciously accepted to step into this position. Uh, you know him from Turlock. He's young. He's very energetic. Our vice president, um, uh, Renia Benjamin, we all know her. She's absolutely intelligent. We are also building <clears throat> on at the president level. We're trying to bring in uh, the new people. Us, I think it's time for us to start stepping aside and have the young folks come in and take over. That doesn't mean we're stepping away. I'm still involved with the organization. I'm still on the board. And we're there to guide them, yeah. if you will, uh, when they need guidance. Mm -hmm. What I'd like to know personally, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners would like to know, is aside from this question might be twofold. So aside from direct humanitarian aid, the, the basic staples of life, what other projects does the Assyrian Aid Society take part in? And how is your relationship? Because there's both the Assyrian Aid Society of America and then there's the Assyrian Aid Society of Iraq. How does that relationship look like? Let me answer the second question first. Okay. Um, Assyrian Aid of Iraq is our sister organization. That is the organization that we do all our work and programs. We execute all our programs through them. They are the ones, our eyes and ears on the ground, and they're the ones that tell us what the need is. We're not the ones that tell them, call them and say, this is what you need. So we work with them very closely. We're in constant contact with them pretty much on a daily basis. That's our relationship with the Assyrian aid of Iraq. What you brought, thank you for bringing that to my attention, actually. One of our biggest programs that we have been able to accomplish and sponsor and support from here and around the world is the Assyrian education. And I know you've been to Atra. I know you've been to our schools where we teach from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade in 
the Assyrian language. To go there, a few years back, I took my father. I said, let's go. He had not been back. I was going back in almost 2013. I said, let me take you for your 80th birthday as a present. When we went, when we went, he really became emotional going into those schools and seeing the, the schools and the kids learning in Assyrian. And uh, I think Narsi, you've heard Narsi too, when we went, he and I in 2000, everywhere we went, he cried, you know, and made everybody else cry. Just from the emotion, the, the over, he was overwhelmed by what he was seeing, that all these young kids studying the whole curriculum yeah. in Assyrian. I mean, that's something that's not been done. And we've been, that really strengthened when Narsi was the president because he was... He's a champion of education, and he we made that one of our core values that we will support, come hell or high water. That's a program we're going to sponsor. <laughs> So we've done that. One point that perhaps you can shed some light on is you, you mentioned schools. The, and, and obviously these schools have a ministry of education that they answer to. Why does the Syrian Aid Society, as a humanitarian organization, have to fill that void? If we don't fill that void, then our children will go to schools, public schools, which are Kurdish schools. So that's what they'll be studying. We want our children to study in Assyrian. We want our language. They could take maybe a class in Assyrian at a Kurdish school, but it's like taking French or Italian or, or Spanish. It's not the same. Our children study every subject in Assyrian. And they also study Kurdish, they study Arabic, and they study English. So you're walking into a school where children are speaking multiple languages, but their main curriculum is in our language, in Assyrian. And another thing we've done is we have buses that, sh that uh, shuttle students from villages to the Assyrian schools. It's a really expensive proposition for us. We don't get much help from the Ministry of Education. Why we do you think that is? You're, you're really putting me in a position here, and I see the smile on your face. Unfortunately, and I'm, I'm going to try to be as politically correct as possible here. Unfortunately, the government, the, the regional government, the KRG, has really not helped us much. We're always, in the, in the, in, we're always behind in payments. We have teachers and lecturers. If they have, if we have to send them to schools that are not 
that are remote, then we have to pay for them. Mm. And that's what we, if we don't pay for them, then those kids don't have teachers. So we do that. And we also, like I was saying, is we also, we shuttle students from villages to schools because if we don't, then those children will end up going to local public schools, Kurdish schools, and they'd be studying in Kurdish instead of studying in Assyrian. That has been education, beside from the other projects that we have and the needs, the many needs that we, we continue to fulfill. Yeah. Uh, the education has been one of our core values that we've stayed with mm-hmm. and been committed to. Aside from that, it's mostly infrastructure, you would say? Yes, a lot of infrastructure, mostly in villages, um, whether it be it uh, a water channel, whether, whether it be a need uh, for um, irrigation somewhere else, or rebuilding a home here and a home there, provided when Dishtet Nineveh was liberated from, Assyrian, ISIS. from yeah. ISIS, Assyrian aid was the first and I think probably the only organization that was there that was providing, uh, we brought in gas truck, gasoline trucks, so that we can give the people that were there, the inhabitants, so that they can use it to um, to use to sure. for cooking and things of that sort. We were one of the first organizations that was there that was giving people food, providing them with food and sustenance. Uh, we were one of the first organization, if not the first, we were drilling shallow water wells so that people, because there was no electricity, there was no power, and we were providing them with that, so we were pumping the water out and providing the inhabitants that were coming back and those that were in, in the area with water. So, yeah, we do a lot of these things. Um, the one thing we're really bad at is um, promoting the work that we do. Why is that? We look at it as our duty to do it. It's something that we have to do. We're busy doing it. We really don't take the time to say, okay, this is the stuff we've done. And Assyrian aid of Iraq does a lot more, too, that they don't promote. And that's something we're weak at and we need to get better at. And I'm hoping with the new president coming in is better, much better suited than I am and others to maybe bring our profile, increase our profile yeah. and, and the work the Assyrian aid does. But again, the way we look at it, as we say in Assyrian, it's wajibu tanila. So we plug along yeah. and do the work without trying to get any, any credit for it. I'm glad you brought up the, the ISIS situation in Dest Ninueh. Take us back to that time. Give me a give me a day-to-day during those events of what what you were having to go through, your correspondence and dialogue with the Assyrian Aid Society of Iraq and aid reaching that area. Yes, I I think since nineteen ninety one when this dislodgement of our people happened. This was the second biggest event since then. And after uh, after Desert Storm, after this was the Desert, second I, I, I think, in my opinion, because sure. that was our people were pushed out of their villages in 91 after Desert Storm. And here here comes this menace that was and you know, unless you live under a rock, you you would you you know how bad they were. It was a difficult time for us. It was the most difficult time since 1991. We leaned on our community. Bless their heart, they came through. 
we really, during that period, I believe, I don't want to speak out of turn, but thinking that year, it was 20, uh, 2014, of, I believe, I don't want to speak Southern Chavez will kill me, but I believe we raised about $2 million. And Between? But when we found out that the need was so great for our people, when people were pushed out of the Shtetnenue, and we needed, we needed to come to their aid, we turned to our community and communities, certain communities throughout, and uh, they came through, and we were very, very thankful. Unfortunately, um, we've not been successful with the multiple U- U.S. Uh, administrations. I think right now we're getting a little bit more, but it really isn't what we, based on our history, based on our ability, yeah. um, it's really they're throwing us uh, a bone here and or there. But we really, the U.S. government has not been very helpful. And I'm talking not this administration, not the one before, all the ones yeah. that I've been the last 26 years. I, you bring up a great point. I mean, you're making this interview really easy for me. I want you, and this is as much as you're willing to share, talk about why you think either the Assyrian Aid Society is falling short or its administration's not meeting our needs. Why is it that we're falling short? Why we're falling short? The Syrian aid, based on our budget, based on we all our workers. I mean, I work. You have a nine to five, yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, Antoine Barani has the same thing and everybody else. We have, as you know, we have one employee, administrator, Michael Bradley. We don't have the resources like other organizations to be in Washington, D.C., to lobby. We're competing with governments here, uh, whether it be the KRG and others. There are other groups that have a lot more resources than we do. We have gone to Washington, D.C. We have knocked on doors. We have gone to these Christian organizations and churches and we've asked them. And they all promise, but nothing comes to us. Why? You know what? I just wish I knew. I wish I knew. I mean, we have the track record. We can show them. Our books are open. We can show them everything. And they can go back to to Iraq, to, to the homeland. Check our work. We're there. We can, we you know, just walk and see. Talk to people about a serenade. I believe there are others out there who have a lot more power than we do that don't want us to uh, succeed as, as a people. Because if we do succeed, then our people will continue to come back and we will rebuild our, our infrastructure. And that's something that I think is not at a higher level, is not something that looked upon positively. Who are friends of the Assyrian Aid Society, whether it's an NGO, Nonprofit organizations, individuals, members of Congress. Yeah, most of the NGOs that we work with and churches that we work with are Assyrian. Uh, we have the ICRC, Iraqi Christian Relief Council, um, under the leadership of our friend Juliana Taimurazi. She's very helpful. We have the AUA Foundation in Chicago that they have been extremely, extremely 
helpful in, in funding our educational programs. Uh, we, we're, we're thankful. I, I just don't want to leave out people, but we have churches here locally. The Assyrian Evangelical Church has been a big supporter the, uh, of San Jose. Of San Jose, I'm sorry, yes. And we have the um, Assyrian Evangelical Church in Chicago have been helpful. I don't want to leave anybody out, but we most of our support comes from organizations that are Assyrian. Um, we do get help here and there from outside organizations, but really not, mm -hmm. nothing appreciable. Yeah. Earlier in this interview, you mentioned Narse David, who's a world-renowned chef, prior to your term, served as president of the Assyrian Aid Society of America. But I want you to talk about how you met him. I want to say it was 19, maybe 87, 88. I was a junior mechanical engineer of the city, San Francisco. Our offices were the Bureau of Engineering, where I was so mechanical, was in this part of the floor, and then we had civil, structural, and, you know, and uh, electrical. This guy comes in there with his plans and all that, and uh, he wanted them approved because of the foundation for the statue. Uh, the structural engineer from the city had to look him over and approve him. But you said statue. So he was bringing in plans oh, for a statue? For Asher Bonapal's statue mm. in San Francisco, which I think uh, all Assyrians around the world have seen yeah. a picture Civic of Civic Center, yeah. Yes. I knew of him because Narsi, as you all know, every time he's on the radio, pretty much he mentions, he throws in the Assyrian in there. So I knew he was an Assyrian and I introduced myself as a young engineer at that time. And uh, we talked, and um, I don't think he remembered me later on when we met uh, with the Assyrian aide. But that's where I met him, actually, the first time, is uh, in our office. He was trying to get some plans approved for the uh, installation of the Ashurbanipal statue. Yeah. Yeah, right by our office, yes. How is it like, how has it been like working with him? I would like to get him on the show, on the Assyrian podcast. Oh, I, think you, need, I yeah. think you need to. And we're working on that. But I want you, from your perspective, how is it working with this man who, for, for years perhaps, was not necessarily in the Assyrian community, but then he takes this role of becoming president of the Assyrian Aid Society of America? Uh, and, and again, it goes back to Dr. Lincoln Malik reaching out to people that were on the outs, if you will, of our community and bringing them in, bringing somebody like Narsi David uh, with the caliber of Narsi David in the San Francisco Bay Area to lead this organization, a fledgling organization, uh, was a stroke of genius. Because Narsi opened a lot of doors for us locally here. It's been a pleasure working with Narsi. It's uh, when he and I were, were in Atra in 2000, we were in Duhok, stayed in a hotel. There was a door between our rooms. We each had our own room. But every morning he'd wake me up. He'd call my room and I'd pick it up and he'd be sing he would be singing Rujjwanka. <laughs> Every morning, I pick up a phone and it's Narsi singing Rouge Vanka. The man absolutely loves his people. He cares about the Assyrians. I just, uh, it's been one 
of the best experiences in my life working with Narsi. It's been an honor actually working with him. He and I went, when we went to Iraq, came back. It was interesting because, you know, Narsi was born and raised here, but for a long time he didn't speak Assyrian. So his Assyrian wasn't, you know, as, as, as well as ours. And in Iraq, when we were in Iraq, I would say something and he would correct me in Assyrian. La atkhali amri, la atkhali. I told him, I said, Nasha, it would be a Shakespeare tsuraya laka. You know, I was like, <laughs> so when we came back, I told him, I said, you know what, Nasha, I don't want to talk to you or see you for the next three months. Okay, yeah, I've, I've had, had it with you. But he's, um, it's, been, it's been a pleasure. Uh, it's been an honor working with him, and, and I'm so glad he's still associated with the organization. I just had breakfast with him on Friday, this past Friday. We sat and talked about uh, Assyrian aid and, and, and what's going on in, in our homeland. So he stays, he stays yeah. very um, involved. What prompted that trip to go in 2000? It was something that we needed to see. We wanted to see our programs. We wanted to see with our own eyes. I, we wanted Narsi more than anything to see what the Assyrian aid is doing. And when we got there, actually, they were laying the foundation for the, uh, for the dormitories mm-hmm. at that time. And what, pur- what purpose do the dormitories serve? Well, the dormitories for many years um, served as, as a... Dormitory is a place for our students who went to college um, or even some high schools who lived in villages that did not have access, you know, or if they needed to come to the city, they would have to live in homes and pay a lot of rent and what have you. So we actually provided them with shelter Mm -hmm. and we provided them with a roof over there so that they can go to school study and um, and graduate so those dormitories for a long time now they're we're looking at different things to do but uh, but that's what they served so that's they were being built at that time we went to many villages where we looked at some of the projects that the Assyrian aid had done we wanted to talk to people that were uh, the residents of these villages and asked them about Assyrian aid asked how what what the benefits were mm-hmm. When we came back, we were both more, de- more, more determined than ever to work harder, much, much harder to help because of what we saw. Um, and um, it seems, and I think that would be an experience I think you would agree. Anytime you go, and if I, I urge anybody that's out there listening to this, if you haven't been to the homeland, go and see with your own eyes. You'll come back a changed person. What is, is there a memory that sticks out from either the 2000 trip or the 2013 trip? Everything. I think every day was, every day was just something new. For me, um, just being there and going to schools, going to, the two things, like I was saying, that stick with me is, more than anything, is the reaction of Narsi in 2001 when we went to Assyrian schools with the kids. And the reaction of my father when we went to these Assyrian schools. We walked into a school, I cannot remember the name, in Duhok. And it was interesting. He and I walked in and there were no kids playing in the in the playground. I think it's Ishtar maybe? Is it I Ishtar? No. Can't remember. Not it's possibly. No, not a CBM, but okay. but we it was little kids. Um, uh, it was a primary school. We were met by the principal and she talked to us and 
eerily quiet. As we walked into the school, uh, the building, there were all these little kids and like first grade were standing first row, second grade, third grade, you know, in a row. And they had signs and balloons and they started to sing to us. My dad just broke down and cried. Thinking about it, I'm getting emotional, but it was something that stuck with me. I mean, he, he cried like a child. Asher, aside from your humanitarian work, what does your professional nine to five look like? Well, first of all, it's not nine to five. <laughs> I wish it was. I do mostly right now for our company, which is one of the largest engineering companies in the world. I mostly do uh, business development. I deal mostly with, because of my background, I deal mostly with developers and major developments, mm -hmm. uh, the private sector. Really what I do, it's, uh, I, even though I study mechanical engineering, it's mostly, I don't do much of an engineering, it's mo mostly management. Sure. Yeah. What has been your proudest accomplishment or achievement to date? Think working probably for three mayors, being appointed by three mayors to work on the largest developments in, in San, San Francisco. Francisco. So, uh, yeah, I was uh, initially appointed by then mayor, San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown, to run um, the $6 billion development at Mission Bay. And then when he left office, uh, then mayor and current California governor, Gavin Newsom, appointed me to uh, manage the Hunters Point Shipyard Candlestick Point. So I was doing both of those together. And then um, I left the city and went to the private sector for eight, over eight years. Mm -hmm. uh, mayor, at that time, Mayor uh, Ed Lee, asked me to come back and help him to, with the developments, I, I was his point person on all the major developments in San Francisco. And unfortunately, Mayor Lee, while in office, had a massive heart attack and died. So after, after his death, I left the city and came back to the private sector. So I would say, yeah, um, working for the three mayors has, has been probably very rewarding. What do you attribute your professional success to? Because I think someone who's been appointed by three San Francisco mayors is quite successful in my books, but what do you attribute your success to? I tell everybody I'm a Syrian. That's why I seriously, I tell everybody, hey, oh, why are you surprised? All Assyrians are like that. Tell them that even in the Middle East and Iraq, where, you know, it's just, it's inherent in us to succeed and, and do well. And I enjoy what I do. I really do. I mean, I, I love going to work. Um, I have a lot of fun doing what I do. And to me, it's, uh, it's not a job. I mean, I, I get paid for liking what I do, you yeah. know? I was like, sometimes I tell my wife, I tell Stephanie that, you know, I'll do this for free even if they didn't pay me. That's how much I really enjoy it. So um, I think it's if, if you find that, the drive, I wake up in the morning not thinking that I'm going to work, but I'm going to go have fun. 
That's what it is. How do you find balance in your life? I have my family. Before I injured my back when I was playing soccer, I have my soccer buddies. I have my friends, non-Assyrians uh, that are out there. I learned a long time ago just to kind of divide my time. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just a natural course for me. Now, yesterday, today is Sunday, February 16th. Yesterday mm -hmm. on the Assyrian podcast Instagram, which I'm not sure if you have Instagram, but if you don't, Asher, you should get it. We did crowdsourcing for a few questions. And so a few folks wrote in and have some questions that are specific to you. If they're hard, I want to know their names. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just close that offline. So the first question, the first question that came through, how do you think Assyrian organizations can improve to increase awareness of Assyrians? With social media, I think it's much easier for us to be able to reach a wider network of people. We have, I'm, I'm hoping, like I said, I personally, I'm hoping that for the Assyrian aid, I'd like for us to be a lot more visible to not only Assyrians, but non-Assyrians. And I've tried to do that actually, and again, I can't speak for others, but I speak for Assyrian aid. As you all know, for like Narsi states of the Mediterranean, we bring in a lot of, um, there are people that are non-Assyrians that come and actually sponsor tables at this event. Mm -hmm. What the Central Valley chapter has done as well with this, uh, uh, with the craft feed, clause for cause, there are a lot of non-Assyrians that come, come there. And when you stand there and talk about Assyrians, then that's something that Assyrians, we can expand our, our footprint, yeah. if you will, in the, in the non-Assyrian community. So, and I think I think another event is the shirt that you're wearing right now, the Mesopotamian night. Yes, yeah, that's that's another thing. I, and I think the Mesopotamian night. I think we need also to bring in, try to attract more non-Assyrians and especially politicians. Because it, I mean, this event yeah. in particular, Mesopotamian night, is hosted in in the Bay Area generally, but right. it's geared towards arts and culture. Absolutely, absolutely, and a fantastic events. I don't know if I answered that person's uh, question, but I can only speak for a Aid, and I would do it. Yeah. What are the challenges you have faced during your tenure with the Assyrian Aid Society? Fulfilling our obligations, our monthly obligations and other obligations as they, they come up has been a, a, a challenge, always a challenge. We really, Assyrian Aid, unlike some other organizations, we don't have a lot of money to lean back on. So what we get, basically, we sent over to a Syrian aid of Iraq. And there are people need to understand too, when we get a lot of an organization such as an ICRC or AUA foundation, give us funding, a lot of time that funding is designated for schools, for a certain project. It's earmarked. So earmarked for that. So when we get that money, we send it for that project. We really don't have a whole lot of funding sitting as an organization. It comes down to money. That's our biggest, mm -hmm. that's, that's kept me awake at nights, mm -hmm. actually. There were times. And Sergon Chavez, who is our treasurer, and I are, we constantly would talk. 
And, uh, um, and again, he would call me sometimes, say, hey, we have this need, we don't have the money. I would say, look, let's go into all the accounts for all the chapters, let's rate them, see what we can do, get as much money as we can to send. So um, I spent, you know, what kept me awake at night is, is not having um, the money the, to fulfill our obligations, mm -hmm. yeah. You mentioned chapters. So how many chapters does the Syrian Aid Society have? So we have chapters throughout. We have, uh, we have obviously a chapter. We don't have a chapter in the Bay Area. The headquarters are here. But we have a chapter in San Jose. We have a chapter in Central Valley. We have a chapter in L.A. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have a chapter in Detroit and uh, in Arizona and one in Chicago. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they, the chapter's mission is to essentially raise funds for the national organization yes, yes. Okay. so they they have they have their own events and they raise funds and those funds are sent to the national office and the national office then uh, appropriates the necessary funds for the different projects yeah yes let's go back to some of the uh the followers questions what is your motivation to keep fighting for the assyrian cause god if i don't who will i mean seriously I'm an Assyrian. That's in my DNA. I mean, yeah. If, if, if not me, who? If you could invite four guests that are alive for dinner, who would you choose? <laughs> oh, my Lord. Assyrian or non-Assyrian? Anybody? Anyone. <laughs> Your call. Oh, my goodness. Uh, let's see. Pele, Joe Montana. Okay, two more. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to upset anybody here. Uh, I would love to be with, uh, actually, my uncle, my late uncle Sargon. I would love to have him sit at the dinner at that table. A Probably another person I would really just enjoy sitting and listening probably would be Einstein. I yeah. Probably most of what he would say would be over my head. But just to be in his presence would be just an awesome. And there are a lot of people I would love to. But, but if there was one person, I think I would love to have my, my, my late uncle, Sargon Polis. I want you to talk about him. I know uh, before we started this interview, we were, we were talking about your uncle and some of his paintings and his poetry. But for, for someone out there, for people out there who don't know who Sargon Polis is, I want you to introduce him. Yeah, so Sargon Polis, my uncle Halloui, uh, was born in Habaniya, Iraq. Came to Baghdad, where, I mean, he at an early age, he was writing uh, for a magazine under a pseudonym. He was at 16 years old. Wow. Yeah, he had to go by a pseudonym so because he was so young. Um, he was selling his poetry at, at that early stage in his life. And then he... Um, lived in Baghdad and um, then came to uh, move to Lebanon, to Beirut, lived there for a few years and then migrated to the United States where he settled in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. He was, um, you know, again, he passed on a few years ago while he was in Germany on a tour, actually, of few European countries where he was doing talks and he was my uncle. I, I, I enjoyed being with him. He was, he was a lot of fun. He, uh, we were talking about how my wife, Stephanie, who's Greek-American, and uh, how uh, her mother, my mother-in-law, 
was talking to her, my mother-in-law in Sacramento, talking to her sister in Athens. And uh, her sister said, hey, they're talking about this Christian Iraqi poet that just passed, passed away. And my mother-in-law said, what's his name? And she said, his name is Sargon Polis. And she said, well, that's Asher's uncle. So um, to me, he was, he was larger than life only because when you talk to him, you just saw some regular guy. Yeah. You wouldn't have known anything about this guy. He's one of the best poets in the Middle East. Uh, when I was in Iraq, actually, the first time in 2000, some people found out that uh, uh, he was my uncle. I was think I was telling you, they were like, so you actually talked to him? I was like, yes, he's my uncle. He's, you know, yeah, he comes over. We sit down yeah. and and chat. They, they just, and, and again, I say that because he was so down to earth. Mm. He, he just, you wouldn't even know that he was at the stage in life where he was. And he, he died when the doctor said that he shouldn't be doing what he was doing, which was very strenuous on him. He had heart, heart problems. But uh, I'd like to think that he died doing what he loved doing. Now I do miss him a lot. Mm-hmm. Asher, if there's one thing that you'd like to leave the listeners with, what would that be? Our people, the Assyrian people in the homeland, really need your help, really need your support. And I urge all of you, I mean, just don't say, well, Peter is helping, why should I help? Uh, Assyrian aid is helping, they don't need any help. Trust me, what we're doing here and what we're giving to them is, is just a drop in the bucket. The needs are so great. If we lose our, I, 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 I'm sitting here, it's easy for me to say in, in America, but really if we lose our roots, they are the people that are holding us, keeping us there. If we, they are our roots, and if we lose that root, we're lost. And it would be a shame for a great, great peoples with our history for people to be talking about us in a hundred years from now. Uh, 200 years from now, that there was this great civilization and they don't exist anymore. And that's why, you know, really, Assyrians in Iraq, Syria, Iran, other places in the Middle East need, need your help. Asher, thank you for your time. Well, thank you, Peter. I really appreciate it. And it's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Real quick, I have a favor to ask before we close out. We appreciate all of the feedback we've received on the podcast thus far. If you could take a minute after this to rate and review us wherever you listen to us, we'd greatly appreciate it. We love reading what you have to say. Thanks again and see you next week.